season one of Written in Stone, the 1990s is supported by Tension Climbing, wooden training tools designed with purpose in Denver, Colorado. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, to get 10% off of your next purchase at tensionclimbing.com and to let them know that their support for this show matters. Not valid for tension board sets, hardware, or gift cards. Cannot be combined with other offers. Tensionclimbing.com. Mastery over success. Written in Stone is co-created by Power Company Climbing. Products, training plans, and education to help you become a better climber. PowerCompanyClimbing.com. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, for 20% off of almost everything. Learn. Grow. Excel. Nineteen sixty-eight, Mexico City Olympics. As usual, has burst out of the box. Tommy Smith running pretty well so far. And in lane two, Bombuk is strong on the outside. It's Edwin Roberts. It's John Carlos right now. It's Carlos and Smith. And here comes Tommy Smith. The Olympic Games are one week old today, and yesterday, the sixth day, was the most dramatic so far. It started with the news that the Black Power disciples Tommy Smith and John Carlos, the Olympic 200 meters gold and bronze medalists, had been suspended by the United States Olympic Committee and given 48 hours to leave Mexico. If there's only one thing you know about these Olympics, it should absolutely be the story of John Carlos and Tommy Smith standing on the podium with their glove fists raised in a show of protest. It was a cry for freedom and for human rights, Smith told Smithsonian Magazine in 2008. We had to be seen because we couldn't be heard. Or... If you're a sports fan, maybe you also know about Bob Beeman breaking the world long jump record by an astounding one foot, nine and three quarter inches, a record that would stand for 23 years. But honestly, I wouldn't blame you at all if the men's high jump finals didn't even register. But what happened there would later be recognized as one of the most important shifts in technique in any sport, period. The jumpers are impressive, approaching their launch point parallel to the bar and straddle or scissor kicking well over most of our heads. But then American Dick Fosbury lines up differently than the other jumpers. He isn't coming in parallel, he's running directly at the bar. At a slight angle, sure, but what the hell is he doing? Planting the front foot, which is the wrong foot, Fosbury launches into the air, contorts his body backward, and clears the bar head first, facing the sky. And when the results are posted, a new Olympic record, the hushed, confused crowd goes wild. But the old guard, yes, high jumpers have an old guard too, were not happy. They didn't like change. Their way was the best way, no questions. 
local newspaper called Fosbury the world's laziest high jumper. One journalist called the revolutionary technique an airborne seizure. Head coach of the U.S. Olympic track and field team, Peyton Jordan, said kids imitate champions. If they try to imitate Fosbury, he will wipe out an entire generation of high jumpers because they will all have broken necks. The old guard. They never change. But change doesn't care. It comes anyway. And in the summer of 1995, change made its way to a small town in France. There was a young climber there, 25 years old, who had welcomed change before. And now he was staying at his parents' house, seeking their help in taking care of his wife, who'd fallen while soloing and sustained a spinal cord injury. For the sake of everyone, he'd escape for a few hours a day to work on a project in a nearby limestone cave. Then he'd come back home to what was most important to him, his family. And so Change rewarded this young climber, Fred Ruling, with futuristic moves, 360-degree campus spins, huge dynamic throws, and at a time when most of the world's hardest routes which had just recently bumped into 9A or 14D, were vertical or lightly overhanging affairs, change offered him a 45-foot horizontal roof, most of it 12 feet from the ground, for him to explore the next level. And because change knows that it can't go too far or we just won't accept it, this roof would turn an abrupt lip and continue up a headwall that more resembled the climbing of the day. Half boulder problem, half root. Change. But when he finally climbed the boulder root hybrid, dubbing it Akira and skipping the 15A grade altogether and instead proposing the almost absurd sounding grade of 9B or 15B, well, that amount of change was just too much for everyone else. And ultimately, would alter Fred Ruling's life forever. But not for the better. I'm Chris Hampton. You're listening to Written in Stone, climbing's most important ascents. This is season one, the 1990s. Okay, so this episode is a little different, obviously. We're five minutes in and he's already done the thing. See, this isn't an episode about a big heroic sin that shifted the culture. Or maybe in a way it is. I don't know. What I do know, though, is that it's an examination of how complicated this thing can be. How much ego there is at stake. And how we choose our heroes instead of history always dictating them. 
and how reluctant we are when change comes knocking. But see, the thing about change is that if it knocks and we don't answer, it isn't turned away. It hangs out, waiting for the chance to slip in the door when some unsuspecting person opens it and ambles in, oblivious to what's happening around them. And usually that chance shows up in the form of youth. See, the old guard were too busy being mired in the past, so they didn't even try the Fosbury flop. But those younger high jumpers, they got the message. And eventually the old guard couldn't keep up anymore. And so, since the mid-1970s, every single high jump record has been set using Fosbury's creative solution. In this cave in France climbed by Fred Ruling, a huge roof with pinches and toe hooks and spinning campus moves, not to mention the hybrid boulder root thing where you clip into a rope after climbing 45 feet and then finish up a head wall protected by bolts. Well, all of that might seem pretty normal now, but in 1995, not normal. And the grade, 9B, 515B at a time when the hardest routes on the planet were four 14Ds, none of which had been repeated? Wolfgang Gulich's Action Direct, Alexander Huber's Ohm, Fred Nicole's Bain de Sang, and another route that stirred up some controversy, Hugue by, you guessed it, Fred Ruling. People just weren't buying it. Rumors began swirling. He's six foot four with a plus seven ape index. He chips the roots to fit his freakish reach. I heard he filled in the holds on Akira after he did it to make it harder so that nobody else could repeat it. <laughs> Doesn't matter anyway. He's just lying about having done it. The other top climbers at the time were also a little put off. They had questions. 9B? That's rubbish, wrote Ben Moon. It's stupid to think you're three grades ahead of everyone else. You don't just claim your route is 9B without asking anyone's opinion. It's important to see people climb and not be alone when you're working on a route. The rating seems crazy to me, wrote top German climber Alexander Huber. If he has reached that level, he is far ahead of all the other climbers in the world. Fred, in my opinion, has not earned his credibility. Pretty quickly, a few strong climbers came to the cave. French superstar Gibe Trebu and Spanish ace Danny Andrada, incidentally, long before he would develop the Alibaba cave and become well-known for his difficult half-boulder, half-rue hybrids. But both would walk away empty-handed, having not even done all of the moves. Trebu would confirm that the roof was difficult, though he followed with, 9B will come one day, but it's still a dream today. And then, for the remainder of the 90s, nothing. Fred had disappeared. And nobody wanted anything to do with the controversial climb. Or, if people tried it, they did so in secret. Akira is exiled. A route without a country, without a community, it sat there, controversial and dormant with its scarlet letter B turning away anyone 
who might have come calling. Finally, at the start of the 2000s, two of Japan's strongest climbers and, well, two of the best climbers ever, Yuji Hirayama and Dai Koyamada, would visit Eau Claire and try several of the curiosities that climbing had seemingly forgotten. And Fred happily came out of hiding to show them the routes. By this time, there were three proposed ninth grade routes in the region, all authored by Fred. And if repeated and confirmed, these would have been the three hardest routes in all of France, possibly the world. Not in Bukes, not in Volks, not in the Verdun, but in the small backwater town of Eau Claire. And in a scene that included some big characters with big egos who were climbing very hard and playing by rules that they made up as they went, making these claims was strike one against Fred Ruling. Both Hirayama and Koyamata walked away empty-handed, save for a 14C that Fred had done shortly after Akira. But they were impressed by Fred's climbing. Dai was particularly impressed by the first of Fred's hard lines, Hugh, a controversial route that Fred had largely manufactured out several roofs and a bulging, white, otherwise blank wall. With its campus moves and a futuristic dyno, it looks like modern hard climbing made for Tomoa or Yanya, not at all like the vertical edging dances being done elsewhere at the time. Dai would return two years later to do the third ascent of Hugh, which had, by then, been confirmed as the first 9A in all of France. And both climbers failed to do Akira, saying that it was much harder than Hugh, and they didn't even give serious thought to another proposed 9A that Fred had completed in 1997. It followed manufactured holds at a foreboding blank feature like the underside of some monstrous limestone anvil. Ruling called it L'Autre Côté du Ciel, which translates to the other side of the sky. And as if he were setting it specifically to please the crowd at a World Cup in 2024, the route included a wild footless cross on two finger pockets at the lip of the massive roof which turns the climber face out, looking at the other side of the sky, just like the famous Mission Impossible crucifix move, but four years before Tom Cruise would strike that same pose. 22 years later, attempting the first repeat, Seb Bowen would break a rib trying this move and have to come back another time for the send, confirming the proposed 9A grade. And so maybe, it's fitting that his final route before the disappearing act culminated in Fred, dangling under this stone anvil, facing not his creation, but the other side of the sky, bearing his soul to the world, having crucified himself on drilled two-finger pockets at the lip of a giant roof. We'll be right back. All right, let's face it. Those climbers in the 90s, 30 years ago, had stronger fingers than most of us. And that's because they spent a lot of time hanging on small wooden edges. And you can too. Tension Climbing has a full line of hangboards and finger strength tools designed with purpose to help you train for your goals. 
personal favorites are the Honestone and the Whetstone for hanging and the Block for lifting and warming up my fingers at the crag. The Honestone and the Whetstone cover everything you need in your home setup for people of different levels, one-arm or two-arm training, big edges, small edges, pockets, and slopers. And no matter what you're climbing on at the crag, the block will get you ready. If you go to tensionclimbing.com and use the code STONE at checkout, you'll get 10% off, and you'll also let them know how much you appreciate them supporting this podcast, climbing history, and this community. That's STONE, S-T-O-N-E, all lowercase, or all caps if you feel like shouting it out. Doesn't really matter how you do it, just do it. Fred Ruling had essentially been exiled, ostracized from this community that we, and that definitely includes me, have often claimed is special. Simply because of attaching a number to a rock climb that some felt was preposterous. And we're going to take another turn here, step completely out of the story itself, and start piecing together the facts. And while I can't say that it's completely objective, I mean, I get to have my own opinions, I will say this. When I began this piece, I had no idea it would go where it went. And all of these facts are out there if you're willing to dig deep enough, so you're welcome to form your own opinions. Okay, here we go. In the mid-2000s, writer Pete Ward and photographer Tim Kimple traveled to France to talk with Ruling and try to get to the bottom of the grade, the controversy, and the man himself. In one of the best investigative articles ever written in a climbing publication, Ward details how they spent several days with Ruling interviewing him and shooting photos on his unrepeated test pieces, and came away in full belief that he was capable of climbing the roots in their current states, and in his own current state. When they sat down with legendary climber Alexander Huber, who'd been a vocal detractor of Ruling's suggested grade, he asked, Why hasn't he done many other hard routes soon after Akira? And the answer was fairly simple. Kempel, going to bat for ruling, explained to Huber that shortly after the ascent, Fred and wife Celine had two children, and then Celine fell ill. She underwent brain surgery, and Fred spent those years taking care of her and the children. So a lack of more hard roots would be because he had his priorities straight. Huber's response? Still, there should be other roots. But the thing is, there were. In fact, as Huber sat there, having left the hardest sport climbing behind for big walls and far-flung places, Ruling was climbing harder and harder. See, in 2001, once Celine was in better health, Fred Ruling would complete the third ascent of Fred Nicole's 9A slab, Bain de Sang, the first non-Nicole brother to do so. Completely opposite from the steep, powerful roots he'd authored, Bain de Sang translates to bloodbath, a name given due to the reliance on tiny razor blade edges. 
And over the next six years, despite the time off, he also did first ascents of a few more ninth grade routes, all natural, including one 9A plus or 15A. And only one of these routes was downgraded by the second ascensionist who found a better sequence. But the 15A? It was confirmed. And as if it wasn't enough to be back to top sport climbing levels, at the same time, he amassed an impressive tick list of over 100 double-digit boulders, including several V14s and a V15 traverse, many, including the second ascent of a V14, in just 15 minutes in front of witnesses. And that's just what came in the 2000s. If we go in reverse to look at what was before, there was what at the time Ruling considered his second hardest route, the other side of the sky, and Hugh before that. Not to mention that years earlier, he had established a pair of France's first eight Cs, including the first eight C in the Verdun, a 30-move direct start to Gibet Tribu's Les Specialistes. Seems to me his credibility shouldn't have been in question at all. And one other major thing Huber was missing here was that the route he held above all others as the top standard in the world, in fact the route almost everyone had sitting up on that throne, Action Direct, was the first from the short list of existing 9As to get repeated, only a few months after ruling did Akira, and that repeat came at the hands of a climber nobody really knew of, who hadn't spent considerable time at the top edge of the sport. Yet, somehow, Alexander Adler had done the hardest route in the world. But Alex Huber, not known for his humility, would be a leading doubtful voice on many future occasions. And let's be clear before I continue. I'm not immune to bravado or even making accusations. And initially, this whole situation with Huber made me a little uncomfortable to report on because he's certainly one of the most important climbers of the 90s, always right there pushing the limits. But frankly, his blatant hypocrisy and ignoring of the facts in this story just couldn't be overlooked. In his 2010 book, The Mountain Within, he questions whether Todd Skinner could have actually climbed the double cracks pitch above the ear on the Salathe wall, even calling its 13A suggestion a flagrant factual misjudgment that essentially proved Piana and Skinner hadn't actually done the Salathe all free. However, in 1979, Mark Huden and Max Jones had done all but four moves on that pitch, and in the mid-80s, Stefan Glovach had top-roped it free. Piana called the pitch 13B, not 13A, in his original topo, as well as in his book Big Walls, and it's been repeated several times since, always called 13B or 13C. Hardly a flagrant factual misjudgment that proves anything. And in 2003, he would relentlessly question Barnaby Fernandez when he proposed 9B plus for Chalam Balam. And while that's a whole different season, it's worth mentioning here because in a letter to Spanish climbing magazine Desnivel, Huber writes, I would like the same thing that happened to Fred Ruling not to happen to Barnabas. I'm sure Ruling is not at all happy that his credibility is in doubt. And I'm sure Barnabas won't be pleased either when his credibility is in question. He goes on by adding a quote from climber Mark Chapman. 
Climbing is a sport without referees, without an independent authority that confirms what has been done and how. Climbing is based on trust. If you put your credibility in question, then you have to suffer the consequences. Which, when used in this context, says to me, As of now, I've deemed myself referee. So, if I question your credibility for whatever reason I desire, then you have to suffer the consequences. And I can't help but think that with all of the criticism, Huber is inviting us to compare his track record with rulings. Not to discredit Huber, but to be fair to ruling. So, before Alex Huber did OM, which was his first 9A in 1992, he had only just done his first two 14Bs a year earlier and seemingly skipped right over 14C. Ruling's track record of hard sport climbing looked almost exactly the same. And then when he claimed 15B, he had 114D under his belt, skipping right over 15A. We didn't doubt Huber's hard sport roots because most of us had never heard of him at the time. We didn't know about him until that Climbing Magazine cover story in August of 1995 when he made news for climbing a variation of the Salathay Wall. In fact, the first words of Jeff Aki's brilliant article titled Power to Waste, which I must have read a hundred times when it came out, are Most Americans have never heard of Alex Huber. But we heard about him just in time to hear him denounce ruling and Akira as impossible. And at the time, because he'd just been celebrated in all of the magazines, most of us believed him. But those rumors, the ones flying around about Fred ruling, remember those? He's six foot four with a plus seven ape index. Well, Actually, he's five foot nine with a plus one and a half ape index, and that's exactly one inch taller than average for France in the 1990s. He chips the roots to fit his freakish reach. It's true, he did chip roots to fit his climbing style, which was futuristic for its time. But as for the chipping, it was a largely accepted ethic. Many of the most famous routes, most famous moves, were made possible by chipping. Antoine Le Ministrel's famous Buke's test piece, The Rose and the Vampire, which lent its name to the famous cross-under move, the Rose move, chipped. That move entirely manufactured. Still lauded. I heard he filled in the holds on Akira after he did it to make it harder so that nobody else could repeat it. Trebu says he never saw any filled-in holds. Warden Kimple searched and found no filled-in holds and only one hold that seemed like it could have been chipped. But it wasn't even a hold ruling was using to climb that section right in front of them. In fact, other than glue for reinforcement, there's just no proof of manipulated holds on Akira at all. <laughs> Doesn't matter anyway. He's just lying about having done it. We may never know the truth, but then we usually don't require proof. Celine, who belayed him, never disputed the claims. 
The only people who did openly dispute it are people who were absolutely not there but stood to lose something, some position or title, or it somehow disrespected their hard work on their own ascents. I'm not really sure, to be honest. He climbed on the route with several people after his ascent, including Trebu, who challenged the grade but not the fact that ruling could do it. So why then, if he'd essentially passed all of the usual tests, identify the belayer, at least prove that you can do the moves, did we so eagerly latch on to the idea that he must be lying? We'll be right back. What's up, everybody? I just wanted to drop in here to say thank you. Projects like this take way too many hours to make, and it just doesn't happen without your support. So whether it's training plans, courses, or products, it's your support of Power Company Climbing, as well as our sponsors here on this show, that has given me the time and motivation to conceptualize and create things like this podcast. So as a thank you, we're offering 20% off of almost everything on our site. Finger files, clippers, apparel, proven plans, ebooks, courses, and more. For details, go to powercompanyclimbing.com stone. And then use the code stone, that's S-T-O-N-E, at checkout. Powercompanyclimbing.com. Learn. Grow. Excel. Climbing is a game, a game without referees to enforce the rules or judges to dole out scores. It's a game without an objective scoring system. We're expected to be honest in our accomplishments, and as a result, we expect to be believed. That doesn't, of course, mean that there aren't people making up a sense, but regardless of our inclination to focus on conspiracies that aren't there, liars are in the minority. But the second we hear of a new accomplishment, we start doing the calculations. What's their track record? Does this ascent fall in line with their track record, or is it outlandish? Could they really possibly be that good? Now. So far in this season, in in these story episodes anyway, I've been using the grades of the day. But we've already stepped out of the story, and well, lucky for us, in this case, we have the benefit of hindsight. So what we're going to do is take a look back at the reality, or as much reality as subjective grades can ever offer. First, though, I'm moving ahead with the assumption that ruling did Akira. When Pete Ward and Tim Kemple spent several days with him, watching him climb on the route, many years after his ascent, they left believing that he could do the route right then and there. And the same with his other nine A's in the area. And so I have no reason at all to doubt this. So... On June 6, 1995, when Fred Ruling pulled on for his send of Akira, the top tier of sport climbing was 9A, or 14D. And at the time, there were three routes given the 9A grade. But with retroactive upgrading, six routes had been done that we now consider 9A. 
and they were, in chronological order, Hubble by Ben Moon, Action Direct by Wolfgang Gulich, Ohm by Alex Huber, Bain de Sang by Fred Nicole, Hugh by Fred Ruling, and Weiss Rose by Alex Huber. And in 2020, 25 years after the first ascent, Akira was repeated. Young French superstar Seb Bouin was on his vintage rock tour, repeating historical routes across France, and knew that he had to go see about the trio of hard ruling roots. And here's the thing. Sebuin came in with the understanding of a modern climber. With spinning campus moves, huge throws, honed roof climbing techniques, and the creativity that has evolved through the gyms and with the help of great setters. The same creativity that Fred Ruling was starting to exercise in various ways in the early 1990s but alone in a vacuum. A hostile vacuum at that. And Seb also came in with modern equipment, not only better shoes for steep climbing, but crash pads. In the video of Seb's repeat, he says, It's quite exposed. You need a lot of spotters and crash pads. Just before he takes a spinning fall onto his back and nearly misses all six of the crash pads in the shot. Ruling had no spotter, no crash pads. Just a distraught husband seeking some sort of peace while climbing alone in a cave for a few hours a day. A man who loved pushing the envelope of movement and possibility, and who would later openly admit that maybe he dismissed some easier sequences simply because he liked the movement of the harder ones better. And what does Seb, with all of these new school techniques and equipment, call Akira? Upper end 9A or 14D. And yes, that's a downgrade from Ruling's original grade, 515B down to 14D. But hold on to that grade for a moment because it's going to come back into play. First, though, let's talk about what's actually important here that any speculation about the grade came from people who hadn't done the route. Most hadn't seen it, and the ones who had couldn't do the moves. When Ben Moon questioned the grade of Fred Nicole's Bain de Sang, and Alexander Huber's Ohm, I might add, Fred calmly responded, I accept that the route could be downgraded, but only by the person who repeats it. This has always been the rule, and it has to remain. In the same article, a cooler-headed Alex Huber wrote, The climber who did the first ascent never knows definitely what grade his creation has, so he has to make a suggestion. In my eyes, this suggestion has to be respected until the climb is repeated the first time and then may be graded differently. And so in this retroactive reality that we're dealing in here, essentially following Huber's suggestion, when Ruling's feet touched the ground that day and he was untying his knot, probably hugging his wife who was on belay, Akira would be the seventh route that we would later recognize as 9A. And at that moment, Fred Ruling might have been the best climber on the planet. According to the numbers, he was neck and neck with Huber, 
possibly his biggest detractor, as the only person with two 9As to their name. Two years later, Huber, around the same time ruling did Other Side of the Sky, would do his third and final 9A, Open Air, which Adam Andra would later suggest to be 9A+. Ruling, however, would climb at least four more 9As for a total of six, not to mention all of those V13 and harder boulders. So in terms of just pure difficulty, I'd have to put my money on ruling. And so, history. This thing we so often regard as truth, as fact, is ultimately our own reading of what little we know about what actually happened. Complete with our biases and misguided ideas and conceptions. We don't simply record it. We shape it. In this podcast, well, it's no different. And when I read accounts of other top climbers doubting a grade, I get it. Particularly when we consider that the Alex Hubers and the Gibe Tribus were still kids in their mid-twenties and at the top of the game trying to push this thing forward. When in that position, I'm sure that it's hard to believe that someone could be ahead, especially two grades ahead. What I don't get though, is the resistance to going and repeating the route, proving your theory. Huber above all, as a theoretical physicist, should understand this. But he stuck to his theory despite the evidence. In a 2008 interview, he said, It's so obvious that ruling never was capable of climbing 9B. The old guard didn't try the Fosbury flop because they couldn't see past their own belief that their way must be the best way younger generation just didn't have that same hang-up. It's possible that the dynamic, reckless abandon style ushered in by Chris Sharma in the late 90s and early 2000s could have come a little sooner, delivered via an obscure roof in France that might have felt like, and might have been, the hardest rock climb in the world at the time that it was done. Getting it wrong, particularly something subjective, like a grade, shouldn't be a reason for the climbing community to turn their backs on someone. If we had taken Fred Ruling at his word, if rather than laugh him out of climbing, the top climbers of the time had done what they did do in so many other cases, travel to the route, climb it or try to climb it, and simply debate the grade instead of the merits of the person, instead of questioning their credibility, then Fred Ruling might be just as well known as Ben Moon, Alex Huber, and Fred Nicole. Because history now tells us that he was just as good at climbing as they were. Maybe better. Maybe further ahead of his time. One, two. 
Written in Stone is produced by me, Chris Hampton, with help from Riley Rush and Emily Holland for Plug Tone Audio, a group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. At the link in your show notes, you'll find all the things you expect and probably some you don't, including video of Fred climbing on Akira, Seb doing the second ascent of Fred's big three roots, and a way that you can see the PDF of that article where Ben Moon goes at Fred Nicole and Alex Huber and pretty much everybody else, complete with Fred Ruling's response in cartoon form, which is absolutely amazing. And look... This show is 100% rooted in the facts, but like Todd Skinner always said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And seriously, if you love what you're hearing, give us those five stars and a glowing review. The algorithm loves it, which means more people find it, which means sponsors will love it, which means we can make a season two and together we can tell the stories of climbing's most important ascents one decade at a time. Secret stoners. Hey, it's good to be back. This morning I woke up and for some reason I felt like I needed to furiously research something that I wasn't entirely sure about in this episode, the Akira episode. And I'm glad I did because I went deeper than I had in the past. I had to actually had to look through three different books and connect some dots that I hadn't connected. I haven't seen this information online anywhere, um, but I connected some dots and I think I got it right. So I changed a detail in the episode just now. It's 8.30 p.m. on Sunday. I went climbing, thought about it all day. Do I change it? Do I change it? You know, we don't have to tell the whole truth here. That's not what this is about. But the the detail, the truth is actually cooler than what I had thought I had figured out. So I came and changed it. Anyway, you didn't need to know that. You never would have known the difference. But you know what? This episode was uncomfortable. Like, I, I wasn't sure how to continue when I started really getting into Alex Huber's role in this. And then with Barnaby Fernandez and then with Todd and Paul on the Salad Day. And it felt like he really wants credit for the things he's doing and other people doing similar things and getting credit maybe took credit away from him. I don't know. I, I, I don't think that's actually a real thing, but that's sort of the feeling I got. And I almost went down the path of just being like, you know what? Fuck that guy. But I didn't. I, I backed up and I said, you know what? The only facts I have are what he writes in his books and uh, the, the facts, I'm air quoting here, of history. And I'm just guessing that this is his motivation. So I tried to make it very clear that I was uncomfortable here. And uh, as you will learn soon, I 
I wanted to sort of make it up because I do think Alex Huber is one of the most important climbers of uh, the 90s. So I wanted to do an episode on him and I started down that path and that episode has taken a turn as well. But I think it's going to be a really good episode. Uh, I can't tell you anymore just yet. But what I can do is give a big shout out to our two newest legends, Connor and Tom. I appreciate you. I appreciate your support. Um, I can't even begin to tell you how many hours a week I spend on this thing between researching, uh, making the music for it, um, narrating it, writing it. Uh, Riley is, is writing episodes at the same time. Um, so it is a constant laboratory of trying to, to put these things out there. And the support that you all are giving means the world to me. And that's not, okay, maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it means a lot. It really does. Uh, it also means a lot that you guys have gone in and you've been voting in the poll. There's 88 votes in there now. It's still, it's still heavily in favor of the 1980s, which to be honest, I'm not mad at. It's 52% to 42% right now with 88 total votes. We've got about 120 some people in the Patreon. So if that's you and you're listening and you haven't voted, go into the Patreon, scroll all the way down to the bottom of the posts and you'll find that poll. And please vote for the decade that you want to hear about next. Uh, while I was in there checking the poll, I just pushed post on uh, the PDF that I've been referencing in all these episodes, uh, this Ben Moon article from On the Edge magazine in 1995, where he calls out everybody. He's just like, look, you all suck at grading. Uh, everything is overgraded except for maybe Action Direct. And I think that's probably been overgraded too. So it's really interesting article. It, uh, it has Ben's piece, and then they talk with uh, Alex Huber and Fred Nicole and Alex Adler and Jerry Moffitt, and they all weigh in. Uh, they take a piece from Jibé Tribu as well, writing about the same thing. And then Fred Ruling, uh, our hero from Akira, Fred Ruling weighs in with a cartoon that he drew that is fantastic. Uh, it's at the bottom of the article, which is in the Patreon right now. So you should go check that out. It's amazing. I, I love the way he responded. You guys, next week, uh, next Monday, Seb Bowen. It took a long time to get this interview. Um, I don't know what it is. Maybe, maybe it's a French thing. Maybe I just don't understand because uh, the French are way more laid back than me. Maybe that's it. But I, I messaged Seb and he was like, yeah, I would love to come on. This sounds really fun. And then I'm like, cool. When would work out for you? No response. And then I try again. And he's like, yeah, I'd love to come on. I'm like, cool. When would work out for you? No response. And then at four o'clock in the morning, I get an email that says, how about right now? And I'm like, dude, it's four o'clock in the morning. Can't do it right now. And I say, you know, we, maybe we can try to schedule something. No response. Then a week later, I get another email, four o'clock in the morning. How about now? I'm free right now. 
I'm like, you know what? This just isn't going to happen. And I explained it to him and I said, look, I have a family. I'm running a business. Uh, I can't just hop on at four o'clock in the morning and do a podcast without it being scheduled. I don't get your email until two hours later. Uh, And he said, oh, okay, well, how about this time? And we made it happen. So (laughs) I'm really glad that it finally happened. And I admire the the laid backness that it must require to, to just be like, hey, I'm free right now. Let's see if that podcaster guy wants to talk. I love it. I'm not wired that way, but I love it. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Um, Like I said, it was a tough one. I'm glad it's out there in the world. Um, If you have not read the Pete Ward article, you should look that up on the internet. It's incredible. And I would... I, I believe that what I've done here is the second best look at Akira, second to Pete's article. So go read it. All right. I'll see you guys next week. <laughs>